as we wrap this up, and, and the subtitle to Daniel this is Counterculture. And even though we're wrapping up, my hope is that you'll grasp onto it. You'll understand and have this desire to continue reading Daniel. And you'll see why, once I get through my message, why you need to keep reading it and pursue God and apply it to your life. See, when we review it, I get to thinking about it. We've only just scratched the surface. There's so much material in Daniel. But you also have to use other parts of the Bible in order to get the full impact of Daniel. And, and I mean a lot of parts of the Bible. From the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all the way to Re Revelations. Even Matthew refers to some of what's necessary to understand Daniel. And um, when I go through this, I don't want anybody to think that I didn't use only the Bible. I, I mean, I, I used my Bible, and it's a little thicker in that it's an ordinary Bible, but it's, got, it's a life application, so there are tons of notes and references and cross-references. And it's good anytime for your Bible study, but when you get into some of this prophecy, prophecy and, and studying from that point of view, you need those cross-references just to save time. It's all there for your reading, but to save time. And another study I used was one from uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, and it helped me grab uh, a perspective, especially for chapter 11. But I want to go ahead and get started. Let's pray one more time as we start. Father, I just ask you to be with me as I speak. Give me clarity in my words and, and the right pace. Help me to be clear on how important your word is and what it reveals to us for our future. And then to drive that burden to tell others about it. And I ask you this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So very quickly, um, let me start here. Where we're headed in chapter 12 is this crowning point, of this high watermark of Christian hope. It's the assurance of resurrection and eternal life with Christ. So I want you to keep that in mind. That's where we're headed as we talk about this. And that hope, that comfort in this assurance, that's countercultural. You don't hear hope everywhere. You don't hear a lot of hope anywhere, really. It doesn't last. It's hope in our own power. And this is hope that things are settled and that we have eternal assurance. And I want to review quickly the mega themes in Daniel as we wrap it up. There's that God is in control, that he's got reasons for us, which gives us purpose in our life. So that's the second mega theme is we have purpose. And you see that played out in Daniel's life. You also see it in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's also this perseverance that we're growing toward. So when we use them, we emulate them, we talk about this, them as examples, but God's got his own plan for us. So I want you to hear that and feel that. And then finally, to wrap it all up is God is faithful. Even if we don't know all the pieces and the parts, God is faithful. Now, my experience growing up is I'm familiar with Daniel and the lion's den. I'm familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. I'm familiar even with the handwriting on the wall, and I don't know if everybody is, but that story, how it played out, and Daniel was able to interpret what was written on the wall with this hand, that's where it usually stops. And I know uh, Kip and Phil and Heather all hit on that, especially Phil and, and Kip in that first six chapters. 
But this time, what I want you to grasp is that God has plans for you and he's working them out. God provides for you to do this work and for you to step into his glory. And God is faithful. Once again, I'm gonna keep saying that. So we're gonna start off with a timeline and I have two timelines. This one is really cool because it starts with the beginning of time, recorded time, whatever we have. God is in eternity and he set this time for us. And as you walk through the Tower of Babel and Adam and Eve and all of this, and we get up to, see where I'm at. And for you on the podcast, you're not gonna get this as well. Oh man, where did it go? <laughs> uh, what I'm looking for is the the statue, the gold and the silver and the and the steel, and then it, we get over to Jesus' time. Where am I? Here we go. No, sorry about that. Here we go, right here. So this period, about in here, to when Jesus, right here, is all we're talking about in Daniel except for chapter 12, which is way out into the future. So you've got all this history and all these ties in and these nations and these lines, which are empires that are rising and falling. And I I want you to grasp that because I just started to get it this morning, is that as you've got the Babylonian empire rising and then falling, and then you've got the Persian and the Medes coming in, that fits in with our statue. And we've described that before. They don't completely go away. In fact, we are still part of those empires that you know, were leftover remnants. People, governments are in power. So I want you to see that part. And now we're gonna go to a more timely, this, this uh, timeline here that I have. And what I started with was Isaiah. And there's a purpose for that because that's about 150 years before the time we're talking about with Daniel. And as we go through there, I've mentioned Ezekiel and Jeremiah, because they're contemporary prophets with Daniel, and they're for a purpose there. Isaiah was before Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and then we've, each, we've got some references to Ezra. And this time frame, I've tried to lay out for you, hopefully you can read it, about um, Daniel 1. I didn't put on there 2, 3, 4, and 5, but they're in between 1 and 6. And then you've got Daniel 10, so not 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and then 12 is way off to the right in the future. Now, if you think about that, the, the reason I did it that way is to show that 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 are in the spiritual realm for the most part. The first six chapters are in the, heav- are in the earthly realm where we talk about details, the lion's den, the fiery furnace, but we want to remember, and that's my end goal, is that you'll grasp this heavenly conflict that's always going on. So let's start with Isaiah. 740 years before Christ, Isaiah's ministry begins. The Assyrian Empire is on the rise. We don't even talk about the Assyrian Empire right now in Daniel, but the empire is on the rise. And Isaiah is prophesying from chapter 40 through 55 about Babylon. Isn't that crazy? 150 years before, 100 years at least before this is all going on. In fact, in Isaiah 45, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open the doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will level the mountains and break down the gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. 
Did you catch that in the first verse? He mentions the Cyrus by name, King Cyrus. And this is, like I said, at least 150 years before it happens. And Babylon wasn't even in the picture at that point. They were a nation, but they weren't in power. The Assyrians were coming to power when this is gone. Isaiah 46 talks about the gods of Babylon. Isaiah 47 talks about the fall of Babylon. So he's talking about the rise and the fall and all this detail about Babylon before, as the Assyrian Empire is coming. I, I want, really want you to grasp on to how God works these details out. And if we're listening, we hear him. Then we go to Jeremiah on our timeline. And just to point out that he's a contemporary, 605 was the year, 605 BC, that Daniel was taken into exile. Jeremiah already was in exile as was Ezekiel, and their ministries are in that 600 time frame before Christ. Now, Daniel, uh, we, we know from, I think, Kip, maybe Phil's message, uh, he was about 15 years old when he was taken captive. And you don't get a good perspective until you start to read and match up these timelines that he was 52 years old about when he had his first vision. So where I'm going to start and pick up, and I think and Heather hit on last week, He's in his 50s when that happens. He's already served well, and he's assimilated in well, okay? And then 539 is when Babylon is overthrown. So he was about 60 when that all occurred, and he gets thrown into the lion's den. So you guys got nothing on him. He, he, this guy it was good all the time. He was, he was steady and strong for God. So... There's one verse, I'm, I know I'm going to take a long time getting set up for this, but 1.8, and, and Phil already covered this, but Daniel resolved to be set apart. And I have to tell you this because then it solidifies why I talked about Isaiah. In the assimilation, Daniel, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chef, the chief official, for permission not to defile himself in this way. God had already set up those details, so that was able to be done. See, Daniel understood that God was in control and he, in, in the big details, in the kings and the empires, but he also understood his role, that he gets to choose how he's going to act and how he's going to react to details and the circumstances. So he was prepared to make a decision. He made this choice, in the assimilation to be set apart. So he played the game well, but he still honored God. He resolved to be set apart. And, you know, as you walk through Daniel 1, you understand how the training, the Babylonian training went, and they were educated him, and they renamed him, and they uh, gave him all this political training in this position of power and this work. But what we don't talk about, and we have to uh, read into is what his parents did before he was taken captive. And, and Phil hit on that, that that training needs to be done early. But his parents wouldn't have known when he was going to be taken captive. They just knew Isaiah had prophesied that this was coming. And they had that word. So they used that word, and it's obvious that he based his worldview, his foundation on something, and that's what I think it was. So these other prophets also, in the same vein, they were contemporaries and they're writing, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And I, I want to read a little bit about what they wrote to the exiles, including uh, Daniel. In Jeremiah 31, 
verses 31 to 33. I think I have just parts of it there, the first part. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So remember, they're in, they've been exiled like, like the first wave, maybe even the second wave when he writes this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made before. And then he goes on down to 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be, with, be their God and they will be my people. So God's, he's ramping up the relationship. He's increasing this deeper relationship with his people. He's promising to do that. So they've been taken, they're in exile, they're captivity, and they're being oppressed. But God is still speaking to them and saying, hey, hold on, I've got this. I'm, it's going to be deeper. It's going to be a better relationship. And then in Ezekiel, very similarly, 36, 24 to 27, God promises to restore Israel, not only physically, but spiritually as well. He'd give them a new heart. And we know David does that in the Psalms. He prays for a new heart. Well, God promises it here in Ezekiel to his people. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So that's his physical restoration. He's going to bring them all back. Cyrus declares, hey, you can all go back. It's talked about in Daniel. It's talked about in Ezra, where they can go back and reestablish Jerusalem, the temple, and, and the Jewish nation again. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you that I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a caring, loving heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. This is where this resolve comes from, is knowing God's word and relying on what he says, because he's promising stuff for the future for us too. All right, let's move quickly. We go through, and I'm going to get ready. <laughs> we talked about this before. At the end of chapter 6, there's this obvious or natural break, and I've referred to it as, the, the and Heather did too last week, this uh, earthly details, and then we've got the spiritual realm. And as we were talking about this, Sherry and I, um, she had mentioned that in, in like kids' books or the kids' Bible, the Bible storybook, they all go up through six, but they don't really mention chapter seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, or 12. And my response to that was not, not anything against her or even the Bible writers, but why can't we convey that hope? In fact, we have to convey that hope. We have to talk about in ways that kids can understand what's gonna happen. Why do we have a hope? This is because we know where God has promised to take us. So I'm not saying that the first half is somehow childish and now we're in this adult material. I'm saying, I'm recognizing that as our faith matures, you know, as we dig deeper, we might have to ask some questions that they're down in the notes section here that other people have gone before us and, and read it and take some time and read it together then we'll be more prepared to rely on these promises of God and to hear with ears of wisdom the revelation that God is providing Daniel and to us about the future of our church and each one of you. There's this change in the subjective, the perspective of the book of Daniel that takes place. It takes us back a step 
to review what's been going on in the spiritual realm of Daniel's life while he's talking about the earthly details. And that's kind of where we're headed. Now, I have to make one more stop before I get to chapter 10, and that is in chapter 9, and Heather talked about this briefly last week, but there's a prayer at the beginning of chapter 9, and it's Daniel's prayer for his people. I'm just going to read this. Chapter uh, 9, verse 1. In the ver- first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, I forgot, the descent by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. It says it right there. He knows when they're going to be able, when this exile is going to be done. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. You see, here's a great example of Daniel's prayer life. He's passionate. He's fervent in his words. But there's also that fact that it's based on God's word, God's revelation, God's promises. God has said through his prophet, Jeremiah, that the exile would be 70 years. And Daniel believed him. Can you believe that? This is the great takeaway that I want you to pick up. Prayer based on God's promises and revelation to us. I want to give you some statistics about prayer, but more about Bible reading. I just ran across these because God gave them to me. Um, (laughs) So after surveying 200,000 people for many years, the Center for Biblical Engagement found these discoveries. In it's the, in the life of someone who engages in scriptures for four plus times a week, so at least four times a week up to every day, their lives look radically different from the life of someone who doesn't do it that often. In fact, the lives of Christians who do not engage in the Bible that often, most days, are statistically the same as non-believers. So even if you do it once a week, you're basically just like a non-believer if you're not in the word engaging in it. So the research here you see shows that people who do read it are 228% more likely to share their faith with others. I think that's an end goal, uh, at least of our church, and I want it to be a burden for each of you also. For 407% more likely to memorize scripture, and that just seems obvious, but hey, if you want to have something to rely on to pray, to give messages and encouragement, it's scripture. And reading it is how you get it. Now the downside, the other side, you're 59% less likely to view pornography, which the more we study that, it is so destructive. Even one time it burns in your brain and it causes a path that can cause future destruction. So viewing it less is better. And then 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. And we all know that can be a huge struggle at different points in your life. But engaging in reading the Bible helps those in, in those areas. It's, it's proven, we know it inherently, but statistically we can prove it. So prayer life matters. Engaging in the word makes a difference in our lives. All right, now we're ready for chapter 10. I don't want to call that my introduction, but that was kind of my setup for where we're headed here. Uh, In chapter 10, it's a heavenly message 
about a heavenly conflict. So uh, let's, we'll get into it, but think about this message from heaven about what's going on in the heavens. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. And at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat, no wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So the backstory is, is that Cyrus had allowed the people to go back, the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And after two years, out of the hundreds of thousands that had been exiled, only 50,000 had gone back. And they'd only begun to work on the foundation of the temple. And this caused Daniel's stress because that their lives needed and our lives need to be revolve around God and God's word and God's place, God's place of worship. So this stress, he was concerned over their apathy and that they were showing for the work of God and the house of God. And he was brokenhearted. So this is where his conflict is coming in his fasting and his struggle. So if we go on down, we find that on the 24th day of the first month, so three days later after he stopped fasting, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linens. And then I will skip on down to verse 12. It says, then he continued, do not be afraid. So they were engaging and talking about it, but this is the point of, of the meeting. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself, before your God, your words were heard. So God heard his prayers from day one. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So remember where we're at. Babylon has fallen. The Persian king, the Persian and Mede empires have come together and they've taken over Babylonia and Babylon and all this territory of Jerusalem. And the Jews have gotten permission to go back, but something is stopping them. Even the people back there are apathetic and not building. And you have to go read in Ezra and Nehemiah about that. So Daniel's been praying. And after 21 days, this this angel shows up, this messenger that there had been a conflict in heaven and also between God's messenger and the prince of Persia. So there's obviously this evil or bad spirit of Persia that's fighting with a messenger that's coming to bring a word of hope to Daniel. And finally, Michael, the archangel, has to get involved to break that up. And then he says, So I said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Now the prophecy, he's saying that Greece is going to become a power and is going to cause you conflict, but there's going to be another conflict. But first I will tell you that what is written in the book of truth, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. So these heavenly conflicts are real. We've got to understand this and apply it to the way we approach prayer, to the way we approach our lives in this worldview, this resolve that we refer to with Daniel. We also see it, um, many of you were here two years ago when we gave the Armor of God series in Ephesians 6, uh, 10 and and following. We We need to understand and know in our hearts that prayer breaks conflict. It breaks these chains. 
In 2 Corinthians, it's referred to uh, our weapons. They're not carnal, but they're spiritual. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, or it could be every pretense uh, that's raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and we obey Christ. That is so powerful when we talk and we think through what the news media says or where we're headed with our first hundred days under this new government or this new presidency or the way that people work is where are we headed and what are they saying and do we measure it against what the Bible says? Measure it against it and this, these are pretenses, these are ideas and ideas matter. So measure them against this and know that behind the scenes, we have the spiritual realm of conflict that's going on while we're going through our conflicts. Okay, that's chapter 10. How's everybody feel about that? Okay, good. We're going to go into chapter 11 and do not even try to take notes because I'm going to show you pictures to get through this really quickly. So hold on. Chapter 11 is history pre-written. It's prophecy. The dreams that, these dreams dramatically outline God's future for the next like 500 years from Daniel's time when he gets it to, it starts with Babylon and it goes through like four to 500 more years and then into the future. But this detailed vision of this earthly conflicts is among the nations. So we're going to talk about what happens between these empires, these nations. And it says in Daniel 11 verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. That is so huge. I read it and I'm like, oh my word. All he's doing is doing his job and he's doing his job well. And he's waiting for work for God to speak to him. So that's when this vision comes to him. We go on down in two and it starts off the heading. And I've got this, this is the Babylonian empire right before at its, at its greatest. And you can see where Jerusalem is and Damascus on the left. And then over on the right side of that center is Babylon, where he is, Babylonia. He chooses not to go back through the rest of the changes in, in his, his leaders, whoever has conquered him at that time. So then if we go to the next uh, slide, we start to see where the Medes and the Persians come in and their kingdom, and there's actually taking over more territory, but it's a big one. So in Daniel 11:2, it starts out the kings of the south and the north, and we start to have this big conflict going back and forth between the north and the south. So very quickly, two through four is like 300 years. Verse, chapter 11, verses two through four, at the end, in, in chapter four or verse four, it says, "After he has arisen, this is the Greece, the king from Greece, the, or the empire, and it's actually Alexander and his son Alexander the Great. After he has risen, his empire will be broken up and parcelled out towards the four winds of heaven, and it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power to be exer- the power he exercised. It'll be less in power." because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So real briefly, after when, when the Medes and Persians started to, to decline and Greece was becoming very powerful, their military was quick. They were just lightning quick and they would roll people. They would roll over that whole area and they took it over. And in 18, 20 years, 
uh, at the most 30, they dominated the whole Medo and Persian area. Under, uh, and the last 14 to 18 were under Alexander the Great. Well, he died in his middle 30s. And if you don't know much about that history, it's fascinating to read. But it's talked about right here in Daniel 11. And at the end of uh, Alexander the Great's life, he was depressed because his old life had been on winning and there was nothing really left, no more territory. His, his army was, was tired. So he settled down and basically drank himself into sickness and then he died and he left no descendants. He did leave some resentment though and four of his generals began to take over. And so they split it up and if we keep going to the next map, you'll start to see this Seleucus and Ptolemy and then we've got Antigonus and Cassandra um, up in the left over here uh, where the Macedonian area is. We won't talk about those two generals much because they kind of fade out and they're not that important to what happens to the Jews. But the Seleucus uh, dynasty or Seleucian dynasty and the Ptolemaic dynasty will continue on for another 200 to 250 years. Every one of those, and some of them are mentioned by name in scripture, those uh, kings that are ruling, it talks about how the north invades the south and the south comes back in the north. And even to the point where some of them are intermarry or give a daughter to the king and it doesn't work. They're, they're trying to bring this power back, but it never comes back to what it was under Alexander the Great. So we continue to cruise through these first 35 verses in chapter 11 and we see uh, the next picture, I think we've got, yeah, that one right there, where Rome is starting to build to become an empire over on the left, out of sight, kind of from where the Jews are, but they're gonna come in and you can see where the Parthi, uh, this Seleucus empire is starting to fade on the right. And that's the kind of the beginning of the end. You start to see where Rome is gonna be able to start to take over. And it's leading up to when Christ is born and the, our whole New Testament era. But let's continue on with chapter 11. So, the part of this prophecy that's reigning this kings of Persia following Cyrus is all in scripture. And we match it up with our historical timeline. History knows about it. And like I said there at the beginning, we still have remnants of those, the science and the math and the government that those uh, empires developed. We, we benefit from that and we've kept that. So there is a part of them that's still around and that will come back at the end of time. 200 years plus of fighting back and forth and Jewish people, the Palestinian area, that they're all in the middle of it. And that's God's design. I can't give you any other reason than God's chosen people are there to cause us to think about what God's talking about and, and increase our faith. It's that simple. You don't have to know any more than that. Just trust him. So Daniel 11, 1 through 35 is all this history, this whole record that we can count on, that we can rely on, that we can build a trust about what God talks about. And that's all I've been trying to get you to do this whole time is to trust what God says. So if you believe, and you're not gonna try to explain all that away, oh, they wrote it after it all happened, then you're ready to hear the rest of the story. So in Daniel 11:36, we take this big shift again. And it looks like on a first reading that it just continues on battling. But when you really let it set in, you start to see that it's talking about another war that's coming and it's a big war. 
And when you read Revelation and some other in passages in Ezekiel, you find out that's called Armageddon, the war to end all wars. And we won't go into it too much. I have pages that I will be turning to skip over the notes I took, but it's about the preparation and the time and the place and the people that are gonna be involved. But ultimately what I want you to get to is Daniel 11:40. At that time, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. So there's another war coming and it's going to be an evasion and a retaliation and it's going to start all over again. But then in 1144, news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with a great fury and destroy and devote many to destruction. Just briefly, there's talk in Revelation about a 200 million man army 200 million. The army is going to come from the east. And so the Euphrates River will be not a burden anymore. They'll be able to pass that easily. And they get in the mix between the north and the south. But all this fighting is going to happen in that same area. That's what the prophecy is saying. So we continue on. And I can't help but we talked a little bit last week about God's intervention, the way God sets things up. Well, in our household, we've been studying Revelation. We started earlier this month and we get to chapter six and I'm thinking this is the four horsemen. This is, and you've all heard of it in some context, whether it was biblical or not. But just briefly, the four horsemen are um, when Christ, who's the only one worthy to open the seals, opens the seals, the first horseman is white and then a red one and then a black one and then this pale green like death one. And all that my research has led me to understand that to be governments come together to create this scenario where wars will be fought on this huge scale and this is this earthly realm. Then because of all the military devastation, you've got death and the, that's the, the black and then you've got this pestilence. So this rider comes in, it's pale green death looking, death all over, up to a quarter of the world's population gone then. I'm gonna let that sink in. Seven billion people now we're talking about, a quarter of them gone. The reason I, want, I bring this up is that the wise listening intently to God's prophecy those words, they'll mean a sense of urgency in our living today. They'll mean a sense of urgency in our telling other people about Jesus. And it also brings peace. I haven't read that part, but it's going to bring you peace when you have an assurance of your eternal salvation. So that's chapter 11. Got you on the edge of your seats, right? What's coming next? Well, Daniel chapter 12, we go into this heavenly realm. After this war on earth of Armageddon, we've got this spiritual war that's going on. And the first words are at that time, and we don't know. We don't know what time it is, and he's not going to tell us what time it is. But at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will rise. And there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until today. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. This is your hope. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awaken some to everlasting life, but others to everlasting shame and contempt 
Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. So they're gonna shine like the brightness of the heavens, but listen to this. And those who lead many to righteousness will be like stars forever and ever. So there's actually a little bit of a plug for telling other people about Jesus that you will be rewarded for that. And I don't want you to do it for that reward. I want you to have that burden that this is coming and to tell people because you care about them and you love them. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal these words on the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase their knowledge. So you know we're in this struggle all the time to find out more, to be more knowledgeable all the time. Well, the trick is to be wise with our knowledge and to still give credit to God for revealing what he has revealed to us. So the details are hinted at, but the exact timing and who's involved in, in, in the war and whose names are in the, the book are left hidden in order to increase our faith. Now we go on in the, these last five or few verses, we talk about the tribulation, there's days in there and you, you really have to study it deeply to start to get even an inkling of an understanding of the different views of the end times. And we're not gonna go there. But I do wanna say that this whole nation will be going through a great time that we've not ever seen. Jesus even talks about it in Matthew 24. When he left the temple and he was going away, he starts to mention the signs at the age, end of the age. So the bottom line is we haven't seen any kind of trouble like this yet. What is coming? And this brings us to his last few verses in Daniel 12, verses 5 through 13. And we're left with this question, how long until the end. And I don't know. We don't know. We're not told. And I've said it a few times, it is to increase our faith. If we trust God in his provision and his prophecy, then we're going to rely on that, that he's going to provide for us in the purpose that he has for us today. But we do know exactly how to be ready. We can call on the name of Jesus and we can follow Daniel's example. Be trustworthy. Trust him to provide. Jesus did it. Daniel's another one that we have this. This is an exciting study of history. But if you say it a little bit different, it puts the whole point of view on his story. This is about God and how he loves us and he's coming to us. But because of sin, he's got to work out these details for us. So the couple big points I want to leave you with, identity. And thank you, Phil, for giving us that who we are and whose we are, this, this perseverance in maintaining our identity and assimilate, be in the culture, but don't be of it. Don't compromise on our principles of God. The second big one is God is faithful. Trust in his promises and live with the hope and the assurance in your resurrection to eternal life with Christ. Now, I wanna leave you with a short benediction that I've modified from Matthew 28. 16 to 20, it goes, go and make disciples of all nations. But I want you to start with your family or those close to you. Be countercultural. Love these people and adopt, don't, but don't adopt the principles of the culture. Welcome them in, but don't change for them. And most of all, go in peace, this peace, this assurance of your salvation. It's all in Jesus' name.